HarperCollins Publishers released a book by Rob Bell. That book was called Love Wins, a book about heaven, hell, and the fate of every person who ever lived. HarperCollins Publishers is not a Christian book publisher because no Christian book publisher would touch this book. The basic premise of the book is that all people either turn to God in this life or they create their own emotional, supernatural hell for a little while in the next life until they turn to God and then everyone goes to heaven. This is nothing more than the revived error of universalism which denies the eternal wrath of God and ultimately makes the cross of Christ completely pointless. It makes payment for sin unnecessary because now God is only love. He's not just. He's not righteous. He's not holy. And so that, of course, presents all kinds of problems with our understanding of the gospel, our understanding of what the message of the gospel is. If love wins, then why are we preaching anything anyway? But there's another problem that we might think about. If there is no hell, which is what Rob Bell's premise is, if there is no hell, what do you do with Satan? What do you do with Satan? Does Satan eventually come around and receive God's love also? Are we all going to get around the big campfire in heaven and sing Kumbaya? Isn't it great? You know, seven, eight thousand years of torture of mankind, but we're all good now. What do you do with Satan? And in our series, Satan and the Schemes, we've looked at how Satan interacts with the world. We've looked at how he hates followers of Christ. We've also looked recently at the Christian strength and our victory against Satan through the gospel, through the armor of God in Ephesians 6. We've referenced Satan's coming demise a number of times, but I want to take this last message to talk to you about Satan's coming doom. The reason is, I want to encourage you not that love wins, but that God wins. We're going to do a bit of a Bible study this morning. I want to firmly plant in your mind at least one more time some of the key passages concerning Satan that we've already visited, and we're going to physically turn to those passages to hopefully implant them in your mind just a little bit more. And we'll begin in Ezekiel 28. What I'd like to do this morning is just show you the six stages of Satan's judgment. There are six stages of Satan's judgment. And the first stage will say, God proclaimed Satan his enemy. God proclaimed Satan his enemy. Genesis 1.31, creation is very good. Nothing in all creation is besmirched by sin or iniquity of any kind. Everything is good. And then, Ezekiel 28, verse 13. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. 
Now, you recall from a previous message that this is a text with a double implication, first of the one-time king of Tyre, but with descriptors that go beyond what is merely human and double as a descriptor of the devil himself. Verses 13 and 14, Satan is created as a righteous, holy angel, so glorious that he's said to be encrusted with jewels. Verse 15, Satan chose unrighteousness. Unrighteousness was found in you. Now, the, the Hebrew verb form here is extremely important. It's a form that tell, tells us that Satan did this to himself. He chose to be evil. That Satan is responsible for his own evil. God is not responsible. Satan is. And in verse 16, Satan was banished from his service to God. He had walked in the midst of the stones of fire in the Garden of Eden. I'm going to come back later to the stones of fire. And so God cast Satan out from the mountain of God, the worship place of God. Go back with me to Isaiah chapter 14. And you recall that very similar to Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14 provides a two-layer account of both the king of Babylon and of Satan. And once again, there are descriptions that go far beyond that which is merely human. These are supernatural descriptors. Isaiah 14, verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Satan was the day star. He's fallen from heaven, not yet in the sense of being banished from the presence of heaven, but in the sense of losing the favor and the blessing of God in every way possible. And you recall the five I will statements. We just read these and we preached on these in an earlier message. They give evidence of his horrific pride, his arrogance. Sin has now not just become part of his nature. Sin is his nature. Sin is the definition of the nature of Satan. Satan has never had moments of doubt. He's never wondered, what have I done? He's never had moments of self-regret, self-loathing. He's never looked in the mirror spiritually and said, oh no, what have I become? And by the way, You can search Genesis to Revelation and you will find that not one time is redemption ever made available to Satan and the fallen angels. Never. In fact, Paul warned church leaders of Satan's original sin of pride. Don't be caught up in it is his warning. He said in 1 Timothy 3 beginning in verse 6 of an elder, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit And fall into the condemnation of the devil. What's the condemnation of the devil? Pride, arrogance, conceit. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And so, the first stage in Satan's judgment, God proclaimed Satan his enemy. He proclaimed Satan his enemy. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. Turn with me to Genesis 3. Genesis 3 Now we're back in the Garden of Eden in which Eve is visited by the serpent. Now some may question whether Eve was literally talking to a serpent or not. 
We just read this in Ezekiel 28, but we established in an earlier message that since Satan was a guardian cherub, an angel of Eden, Eve was apparently already familiar with him. He was acquainted with the day star. But in this instance, Satan seems to have inhabited a beast, a serpent, sort of like he entered into Judas on the night of Jesus' betrayal. There is other precedents for this in the Bible. Balaam, uh, his donkey in Numbers 22, was energized supernaturally to speak. So there's other precedents for, for some reason in God's plan, animals being temporarily given that ability. Don't let that make you a vegan, wondering if you're going to be confronted by a cow someday. But in the Bible, once in a while, an animal speaks. Some have trouble believing this, and they'll say, well, the the serpent is symbolic. There's no reason to make the serpent symbolic. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, Paul simply calls Satan the serpent. Revelation 12, 9, and in, in Revelation 20, verse 2, calls him the ancient serpent. And even today, likely because of the curse, we associate snakes with evil and fear. I just don't think it would have had the same effect if Satan had appeared as a duck. It just wouldn't be the same. The duck of old. It just doesn't uh, go over. And so he appears as something that is slippery, difficult. Satan has tempted Eve, and she and Adam have disobeyed God and eaten of the forbidden tree. And that brings us to the second stage in Satan's judgment. God declared Satan's future defeat. God declared Satan's future defeat. Look with me at Genesis 3.14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. This is the curse on the beast itself, the serpent Now, some feel that there was an actual physiological change in snakes from that time on, that perhaps they'd even had legs, but now they're going to slither in the dirt. There's no real evidence for that in the actual text. But think about the symbolism of this judgment. The serpent enticed Eve to eat the forbidden fruit. That was her sin of eating. And now the serpent will eat dust all of his life. It'll be as if there's a reminder of what he's done for all of the serpent's life. Leviticus 11.42 declares any animal that crawls on its belly unclean to eat. It is cursed by God. I know some people have eaten snakes on occasion, I guess if you're desperate, but generally speaking, you don't go to a restaurant and turn the page to the snake section. It's just not there. And so there's the curse just on the serpent. But now you have the actual judgment on Satan, the declaration of his future defeat. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's enmity. It's a word that means hostility. It's not just, I'm a little bit upset with you. It's two nations at war. It's that level of enmity. And this is very, very serious language. This is the language of a life and death struggle, a a struggle to the death. The attacks here by each combatant are similar as reflected in the ESV's translation of bruise twice in that verse because it's the same word. It's a word that means to attack, to grip hard, or even to crush. But the location of each attack is what makes the difference. Satan will strike the heel of the offspring of woman. That is a non-lethal blow. 
And the offspring of woman will strike the head of Satan, a lethal blow leading to eventual defeat. Now, it's interesting here, the word offspring, seed, is singular. It's a very useful term that can be used to speak of a single individual or of an entire people. This is universally now understood to be what theologians call in Latin the first gospel. Because right here at the very beginning of the entrance of sin into the creation, and just before God pronounces a curse on mankind, God provides the answer for the curse of sin. Redemption is coming. A Savior is coming who will crush Satan's head. By the way, since offspring can refer to a whole people as well, not just an individual, remember Paul's promise to the Christians in Rome? He said in Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That the followers of Christ, the seed of woman, we are those who participate in the defeat of Satan. Now, to keep it going from there, turn with me to the New Testament, John chapter 12. Told you we do a bit of a Bible study today. In John 12, we're in the final verses in John's gospel concerning the ministry of Jesus. His crucifixion can be measured now in terms of how many hours away it is. Jesus is about to declare an upcoming victory. In verse 27 of John 12, he says his soul is troubled. He's about to be delivered over to die But he says he's not going to ask his father to save him. He said the cross is why he came. He came to earth. He prays in verse 28, Father, glorify your name. And God answers, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. This is a statement of confidence. And after being given this assurance of total victory, Jesus makes a bold and audacious proclamation against Satan. And that brings us to our third stage in Satan's judgment. God struck Satan's death blow. God struck Satan's death blow. And we see this in John 12, verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Jesus says, now is the judgment of the world. The ruler of this world will be cast out. How? The cross. The cross is coming up in just hours. Now, how is the cross judgment to the world? Well, those who aren't drawn to the cross won't ever receive its benefits. That's how it's judgment. And the world crucifying Christ now condemns themselves. And all who continue to see Christ in any other light than the sacrifice of God on behalf of those who would believe for forgiveness of sin, you see Christ in any other light, they will be judged by whom? By a resurrected Jesus Christ. Revelation 20, verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. In context, by whom? By Christ. But then Jesus says that the ruler of this world will be cast out. This can only be Satan. This is a term he uses other places for Satan. Now, in this section of John's gospel, Satan is suddenly playing a big part. It's a big role. This battle between good and evil, between God and Satan, is now coming to a head Right before leaving the upper room at the Last Supper, Jesus said in John fourteen thirty, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. Who is coming? Who is on his way? Judas, indwelt by Satan. John sixteen eleven, Jesus declared the ruler of this world is judged. What does that mean? It means Satan's authority is taken and now the kingdom of the world will slowly be taken from him as well. He was allowed by God to 
assume control under God's sovereignty of the world when Adam and Eve led humanity into sin and into depravity. Satan has been causing chaos and pain and destruction ever since. He sees earth as his possession, as his kingdom. He even had the impudence to offer Christ second place in the kingdom of Satan. Matthew 4, verse 9, at the temptation of Jesus. Why is the world Satan's domain? Why is that the case? Very simply, because every person born in the world belongs to him already. Jesus told the evil rulers of Israel, you are of your father, the devil, in John eight forty four. Every person on earth is by default a citizen of the kingdom of darkness. But now, through the cross of Christ, Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 9, that you have been called out of darkness into his marvelous what? His light. In other words, through the cross, now Satan is going to begin losing ground. He's going to start losing kingdom citizens to the countless people who will begin changing sides, changing sides, changing sides, running from the darkness to the light at the call of God. And so the death blow to Satan will be dealt at the cross and Christ is audaciously claiming that he will successfully finish this mission. Remember we've said the numbers, numbers of times that Satan did not want Jesus to go to the cross because that would make certain his defeat was, was nailed down. And Jesus here, before being arrested, before being tortured, before having his beard plucked out, before being whipped, before bleeding, before being beaten, before being ostracized, before having names called at him, before being mocked, before being put on the cross, before being tortured, before giving up his spirit to die on purpose, he's already saying, yes, I could call 12 legions of angels, but I'm not going to do it. I'm going all the way, and aren't we glad? Aren't we glad? On the cross, what did Jesus say? It is finished. What's finished? I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Yeah, Satan, you will bruise the heel of Christ, but he's about to crush your head. As Christians, we sing... Jesus, keep me near the cross. But for Satan and for all who would follow after him, the cross is the symbol of their destruction and their doom. It is the instrument of the execution of Jesus to pay for the sins of all who would believe on him that now becomes the instrument of the demise of Satan and all who would reject Christ. The cross is a done deal. Yeah, Satan is still dangerous. He's in his death throes. As far as we're concerned, though, our victory is already accomplished. 1 John 5, 4, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith, faith in whom? In Christ, we ride the coattails of the cross. We're covered in the blood of Christ, forever cleansed of sin. In fact, the Apostle Paul, he makes a poetic expression at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, and it is... In the genre of biblical literature, it was called a taunt song. And it's just like what it sounds. It's a song in which you flaunt your victory while you essentially dance over the dying body of your enemy. He says in verse 54, death is swallowed up in victory. He says, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And he says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Only the Christian can dance and sing over death itself. 
you can hear him taunting, where's your victory? Where's your sting? Where are you now? When Jesus cried out on the cross, he proclaimed to the world and to God that his redemptive work was accomplished. It is finished. And he was proclaiming to Satan, you are finished. The first three stages of Satan's judgment, they've already happened. The last three have yet to happen. The fact that three are already fulfilled, what does that do for us? It gives you great confidence that the last three are going to come to pass as well. God will finish what he started. Let's go back to the Old Testament. Turn with me to Job chapter 1. In Job, we get this unique behind-the-scenes look at heaven. We've said before that Satan has continued now to have access to God in heaven. He doesn't have access to his blessing or to his favor, but he has access to communicate In God's sovereign plan, he continues to use Satan for his own larger and perfect and glorious purposes. And so in Job 1, we begin looking at the fourth stage of Satan's judgment. God will banish Satan from heaven. God will banish Satan from heaven. Job 1, beginning in verse 6, familiar to us, but worth reading. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Those are unholy angels and satan also came among them the lord said to satan from where have you come satan answered the lord and said from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it and the lord said to satan have you considered my servant job that there is none like him on the earth a blameless and upright man who fears god and turns away from evil then satan answered the lord and said Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. You notice, by the way, it's God who makes the first move. God never reacts. God makes the first move. He says, have you considered my servant Job? And we've often said that if Job knew that was about to happen, he would say, God, please don't say my name. Please don't say my name. Job, you said my name. Because now Job's life is going to change. God is setting Satan up so that God may prove that a true worshiper will never forsake his faith no matter what you take away from him. Satan accuses Job of being a gold digger. Verses 1 through 5 recounts the great wealth and prosperity and family blessing of Job. That Job only serves God for what God gives him. Which, by the way, proves in ancient times that the prosperity gospel is of the devil. Because false believers pretend to serve God if they believe God will give them wealth. And give them health and so forth. And Satan has been accusing the faithful ever since. He's accused you the same way he accuses Job. Let's go to the other end of the Bible now, to Revelation chapter 12, all the way at the very end. And now we come to the three and a half year point of a seven year tribulation period. The last half is sometimes called the great tribulation in scripture. The church of Jesus Christ has been taken up into heaven 
and now by means of the Spirit of God and the Word of God still being proclaimed through God's power, a great move of evangelism has now been happening on the earth through a a massive move of God, even as Antichrist has seized power over the world and as great judgments are about to begin falling on the earth. Revelation 12, beginning in verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, that is Satan, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. So during the great tribulation, Satan is finally banished. And apparently he's been given some information from God. Tick tock, time is short. The prediction of his doom in Genesis 3.15 didn't come with a time frame. There was no time frame in Genesis 3.15 when God cursed the serpent, when God cursed Satan. And so Satan, through all of history, has been playing the long game. First, he tried to take out Israel. Then he tried to kill the child Jesus. He tried to tempt Jesus away from the cross. Then he tried to overwhelm Jesus with fear and trepidation and apprehension of the cross by means of betrayal and humiliation and torture to tempt Jesus to cry out to God to rescue him. But now, Satan can't play the long game anymore. Now he's out of time. And in his fury, he becomes all the more focused on destruction and mayhem. And who does he go after? Verse 13, when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Who is the woman that gave birth to the male child? The woman is Israel giving birth to the Lord Jesus Christ. We see this in verses 4 through 6. Before you theologically write off Israel, remember that is the position of Satan to go after Israel. And so Satan's banishment from heaven, the ceasing of his accusations, finally the stopping of his lies. This takes place halfway through the Great Tribulation. And for the first time in thousands of years, saints have relief from the accusations of the evil one. Go a few pages further to Revelation 20. We fast forward now just three and a half years, 42 very quick months. The earth has experienced the seal judgments of Revelation 6. The earth has experienced the trumpet judgments of Revelation 8 and 9. The earth has experienced the mysterious thunder judgments of Revelation 10. And the earth has experienced the awful bowl judgments of Revelation 16 right at the very end of the Great Tribulation. These bowl judgments just come one after another after another. Antichrist has been killing all in the world who would serve Christ and will not worship him. The earth has been in turmoil. One half of the earth's population has died from the judgments of God. And at the end of all things, 
The armies of the earth have arrayed themselves against Jerusalem in the valley of Megiddo, Armageddon, only to find that they have a bigger enemy, and that is the returning Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Matthew twenty four twenty seven, as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of man. And when these enemies of Christ see this in the sky over a period of time, that something is happening, that somebody is coming, what do these armies do? Revelation six fifteen says, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Joel 2 verse 11 says that the Lord utters his voice before his army for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? And then in verse 31 of Joel chapter 2, the sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Zechariah 14.3 says the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. And verse 12 of Zechariah 14 says, And this shall be the plague with which the Lord shall strike the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And when all of his enemies have been slain, Zechariah 14.9 tells us beautifully, the Lord will be king over all the earth. Now we come to the fifth stage of Satan's judgment. God will bind Satan from earthly activity. God will bind Satan from earthly activity. Revelation 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, just to make sure we know who we're talking about here, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. For a thousand years on earth, the earth will be ruled by the physical presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and it will be free of Satan's activity. This will be a time of glorious joy and holiness on the earth. It will be like somebody who's born with a horrible disability suddenly freed from that, not being able to comprehend what that's like. When we live on an earth that is free from Satan's activity, we're, we're going to say, how did we ever make it before? It will be glorious We get an example in Isaiah 65, beginning in verse 21. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. How will prayer work? Before they call, I will answer While they are yet speaking, I will hear. Lord, could you help me with... Oh, there it is. What a day that will be. A thousand years in your home 
on your particular area of earth, you can plant a sequoia and watch it grow for a millennium. By the way, even though Satan is bound during this time of Christ's reign, there is still sin. We will be, as the church, those who are already resurrected, but the survivors of the Great Tribulation will bear children. And the first generations will be blessed. Isaiah 65, 23 says this, but then some will be tempted to sin, and yet under the reign of Christ it won't amount to much. Zechariah 14 says, disobedient nations will have no rain following them until they obey. Isaiah 65, 20 says that the world will know who the disobedient sinners are because they will die so young, only 100 years old. And even though Satan is bound, by the way, the serpents of the earth, the snakes, will still be a reminder that sin exists. And I can prove this. Isaiah 65, 25. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. Oh, how nice. That's a, a beautiful scene, isn't it? The lion shall eat straw like an ox. No more bloodshed in the animal kingdom. Isn't that nice? All the animals are happy now, right? Nope. And dust shall be the serpent's food. Oh, come on. Sorry, snakes, you're still cursed. Sin is still here. Now, I should address this here, this future binding of Satan. In an effort to stay consistent with a theological viewpoint that does not acknowledge a literal millennial kingdom, a literal thousand years, some theologians in the covenant theology camp of our brothers and sisters assert that Revelation 20 is happening now and that Satan is currently bound. That that's what's happening. Dr. Douglas Kelly, a professor of systematic theology at Reformed Theological Seminary, he makes the case for Satan's current binding. First, he subscribes to the assumption and the presupposition that the thousand years of the reign of Christ as described in Revelation 20 is the time between the first coming of Christ and his second coming. That's an assumption, though, and it's not gleaned from any text in Scripture. And so he says that the thousand-year number must be symbolic since it's been well over a thousand years since the first coming of Christ. Dr. Kelly explains away the 1,000 years by stating, quote, In terms of biblical numbers, 10 represents fullness, and the thousand is 10 times 10 times 10. Hence, fullness times fullness times fullness. That is a terrible argument because it has no basis in the text itself. It's 100% an assumption. I could make the same assumption and say that Jesus had six trials. And in the Bible, six is a number of evil and incompleteness. So we don't know how many trials Jesus actually had. We just know that they're really bad. It's exactly the same logic. A little side note here. There is no reason to make the number 1,000 symbolic since all the other numbers in Revelation are extremely specific, right down to the number of days in the second half of the Great Tribulation. There will be 1,260 days. There's nothing symbolic about that. You could go to Revelation 21 and look at the measurements of New Jerusalem. Very, very specific. Something else to consider Revelation 20, verse 3 says specifically that Satan is bound from deceiving the nations. Here's what Dr. Kelly says. Quote, something happens to Satan's ability to keep the nations of earth blinded from seeing who God is and what his gospel means for them. Did you catch that? He said Satan has been kept from blinding the nations. As a result of Christ's finished work in dying on the cross and rising from the dead, in ascending to the Father and being crowned on the crown of glory, 
on the throne of glory rather, Satan lost his power to deceive the untold millions of pagans, which he formerly kept blinded to God's saving truth. First of all, there's a huge leap in logic from the simple statement that Satan is bound to him only being bound in terms of proclaiming the gospel. That's an attempt to explain away the news, basically. And so here's Kelly's conclusion. These are my words, rewording re, uh, what he just said, that Satan no longer blinds the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Problem. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. The whole passage in Revelation 20, 1 through 3, it has to be considered. He's bound to the pit. Greek, we get it, from the Greek word, we get the word abyss, a place of prison for demons, a place where he has no access whatsoever. Look what it says here. It says, he, verse 3, he threw him into the pit, he shut it, and he sealed it over him. Does that sound like partial access? Does that sound like Satan is bound, but he's just kind of an annoyance now? Luke chapter 8 records the instance in which Jesus cast many demons out of a man and the demons begged Jesus, quote, to not command them to depart to the abyss, to the place of torment where they would be inactive. 1 Peter three nineteen records that Jesus proclaimed victory, quote, to the spirits in prison. And in context, these were the demons who disobeyed God, causing the great sin on the earth before the flood. Genesis 6 called them the sons of God, the angels created by God, who had disobeyed and mingled with the women of earth. And so we would never say that those in the abyss, the demonic prison, simply have a little access to the earth, just not as much as they used to. What's the reality? 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls, not prowled, around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Ephesians 1, 2, 1 and 2, rather, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Paul said that the disobedient professing believer in the church is to be delivered over to whom? To Satan. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 5. Paul commanded married couples to be frequently intimate together. 1 Corinthians 7 5. Quote, so that Satan may not tempt you. Paul warns in 2 Corinthians 2 11 that we're not to be outwitted by Satan. Paul complained in 1 Thessalonians 2.18 that he had wanted to come visit the church in Thessalonica, but Satan hindered us. In 1 Timothy 1 verse 20, Paul handed over unfaithful elders in the church at Ephesus named Hymenaeus and Alexander, handed them over to whom? To Satan. In 1 Timothy 5.20, some false believers in the church, quote, have already strayed after Satan. The binding of Satan from activity on earth is a future judgment of God. I mean, otherwise, why do we have the spiritual armor of Ephesians 6 that we looked at last week to do what? To stand against the schemes of the devil. If he's already in the abyss, we don't need that. By the way, if this is the millennial kingdom, how disappointing is that? And you would think that would be enough Why not just leave him in the pit? Why not just leave him there? Let's just leave that 
that seal in there and just know that he's being tortured down there in the dark with all the other demons. It's not the way God works. He's going to get total, complete, utter glory over Satan. And to get more glory over Satan, God will release him one last time. Look with me at Revelation 20, verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The last stage of Satan's judgment, the sixth stage, God will consign Satan to hell forever. God will consign Satan to hell forever. Verse 10. And the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan will join the Antichrist and his false prophet who have been already in hell for 1,000 years. Revelation 19.20 tells us this. The demons know that a time of torment is coming. They asked Jesus in Matthew 8.29, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Before what time? Before the time of coming eternal punishment. Then you have the great white throne judgment and the coming of the new heavens and the new earth and never again will humanity be plagued by sin and the originator of sin, Satan, the serpent of old. You have now the lake of fire. You have the lake of sulfur called 12 times by Jesus hell in the Gospels. It's named after an actual place in Israel. Did you know that? The specific place was originally called Topheth. And it was in the valley of the son of Hinnom. Second Kings 23.10 tells us this. It was an idolatrous worship center from the time of King Ahaz all the way to Manasseh. It was south of Jerusalem where children were burned alive in fire as an offering to the god Molech. Second Chronicles 28 explains this. Ultimately, the good king Josiah destroyed Topheth in the valley of Hinnom. It was made into a garbage dump for Jerusalem's trash and was tended with a continual burning fire. There's evidence in the book of Jeremiah that Topheth in the Valley of Hinnom may have reverted back at times to the practices of child sacrifice. And as punishment for this, Jeremiah proclaimed that in the future, the Valley of the Son of Hinnom would be called the Valley of Slaughter since many would be slain there and for lack of room elsewhere, the dead would be burned and buried in Topheth. That's in Jeremiah 7 and also 19. And so Topheth in the valley of Hinnom became symbolic of loathsome and destruction and disgust. And it became the symbol of God's eternal judgment, the place of burning. The smoke from the valley was a common sight in Jerusalem. Children were told, don't go anywhere near there. The continual burning of all that has been discarded. Eventually, the Valley of Hinnom became better known by its Aramaic name, Gehenna. The Greek transliteration of Gehenna appears 12 times in the New Testament and is translated hell from an Old English word, hele, which means abode of the dead or place of torment for the wicked. 
But why is the primary feature of hell fire? Why is it fire? Fire signifies divine purifying judgment numbers of times in Scripture. Second Peter 3.10, the old earth is burned and purified with fire. Leviticus 10, fire consumed the disobedient sons of Aaron. Numbers 16, fire consumed 250 rebels against God's chosen leadership of Israel. Genesis 19, God rained fire and sulfur on, on Sodom and Gomorrah. Concerning the second coming of Christ, here's a detail we sometimes overlook. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8 says that the Lord Jesus will be, quote, revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. How will the world see that Christ is coming? Because the sky will appear to be on fire. So fire signifies divine purifying judgment, but fire is often, often also symbolic of God's holy presence. Exodus 3. God appears to Moses in the midst of what? A fire. Exodus 13, the presence of God appears as a pillar of what? Of fire. Leviticus 9, fire came out from the tent of meeting and consumed the burnt offering being given to God. And verse 24 says, when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Why? Because in the fire, the presence of God was revealed. Acts chapter 2, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God on earth in the church is revealed in what? In tongues of fire appearing over the apostles' heads. But what about fire concerning the final judgment of Satan? Remember Ezekiel 28, verses 14 and 16, Satan is said by God to have walked in the midst of the stones of fire. Some think this is speaking of those fine gemstones in Ezekiel 28 that describe the magnificence of Satan, but then he's walking among himself. That doesn't make any sense. Using the principle of Scripture, interpreting Scripture, we can with great certainty say what these stones of fire refer to. Zechariah chapter 2. God declares that there will be a day in the future when Christ is on earth, when Jerusalem dwells in security and in safety. Verse 12 says the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem and And, listen to this, Zechariah 2, verse 5, And I will be to her a wall of fire around, declares the Lord. I will be the glory in her midst. A wall of fire made of what? Stones of fire. This is maybe in this case not a literal wall of fire, but it's indicative of the absolute safety granted to Jerusalem. And so for Satan, as one who is granted access to the Garden of Eden, Satan walked in the midst of, it means in the middle of, on the inside of the stones of fire. And in this case, in the Garden of Eden, there is no reason to believe that there was not a literal wall of fire protecting Adam and Eve and all who were inside in the blessing and the presence and the honor of God. Satan was inside the protective wall. He was trusted. He was in the inner circle of fire with the people of God. But now he'll be in the literal lake of fire which keeps all sinners for all time away from the people of God. Those in the eternal bliss in heaven. By the way, if you're inclined to think that Rob Bell was right and there is not a literal hell with literal fire, then to be consistent, you need to also believe that there is not a literal heaven with literal blessings from God. 
that heaven is really just a state of mind that you achieve after death. That, by the way, congratulations, would make you a Buddhist. One last thing. Remember that in Scripture, fire is also indicative of the presence of holy God. The most terrible and terrifying thing about hell will not be the flames or the torture or the agony. The most terrible thing about hell will be the constant eternal presence of Jesus Christ and his angels to administer the wrath of God, to be looking into the angry eyes of the Son of God who will now never be your Savior, who will now never invite you to drink of the cool living waters of salvation, who will never say, come unto me all who labor and I will give you rest, who will never say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand because now it's too late. And Satan and all who have followed him will be tormented by the white hot flaming wrath of God governed and dispensed by the Son of God himself. Revelation 14.10 proclaims that all who reject God quote, will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Jesus Christ administering hell. It is a very, very simple choice. Repent and receive Christ as Savior and eventually be separated from Satan for all eternity in the presence of God or refuse God's gracious offer of salvation and join Satan for all eternity. In Revelation 14, 11 says, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. It is too late for Satan. His doom is sure, but yours is not. Yours is not. And you consider that Satan has rebelled for many, many thousands of years and your lifetime can be literally mathematically counted in hours. If you don't know Christ, don't face him as your judge. Take him as your savior. Well, we've spent a few months looking at Satan and his schemes. His schemes are powerful. They're terrible. They can derail your life if you're caught off guard spiritually, if you're unaware, if you're blinded by your own pride, which is the downfall of Satan. But there will be a day when he's no longer a factor. There will be a day when he no longer plagues the church of Jesus Christ and all the little things that have happened in the church and all the little things that have happened in your life, they'll all be gone. They'll all be resolved. And in that day, as John's description of New Jerusalem tells us in Revelation 21, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Listen to this. But nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. 1 Corinthians 15 sings the taunt song over death. Someday we will sing the taunt song over Satan because if I understand the order of events correctly, you will have 50-yard line seats to the judgment of Satan. And every bit of 
destruction and suffering and pain that can be attributed to him will be made new. And God wins. And you win. Let's pray. Our father Satan is a mighty being. And even the thrashing of his power in his death throes can ruin a Christian life if we fall for his schemes. Certainly won't ruin us unto destruction and death. We are still saved. We have been given great assurances of our salvation. But he does have the power to make this life more miserable and even to impact our eternal reward, not our destiny, but our reward. I would pray for an individual here, Lord, who has not come to faith in Christ, a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, this day, perhaps even motivated by terror of Satan, would run to the one who has overcome him, who has gained defeat and victory over Satan, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray for individuals in our church, Lord, who know Christ, but whose lives are characterized by defeat, characterized by disobedience, by inconsistency, by pride, by arrogance, by selfishness, by thinking of themselves continually. Open their eyes, Lord, to that scheme of Satan that they might look to Christ and think on him. And Lord, finally, we ask you on behalf of our church as a whole, this group of believers that meets here on Young Street, protect us, Lord. Allow us the privilege of being effective for the gospel of Jesus Christ that we might not fall for Satan's schemes, but instead say, stay true and faithful that you might say to us, well done, good and faithful servants. Lord, we thank you for the gospel of Christ, which saves, which sanctifies, and which has guaranteed our future. What a glorious day it will be when we are relieved of the evil that is among us. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.